This is Write Your Own Story, Three Keys to Rise and Thrive in Life and Business. I'm your host, Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian. Hi, I'm Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian. I am the CEO of a company called WeThrive.Live, my keynote speaker and an executive coach. And you are tuning in to our Future of Work series here on the podcast. I am passionate about the shift that we are in as a society And I believe it's the greatest shift that we've been in since the shift from the agricultural age to the industrial age model of work, where the work construct has such a significant impact on society. And in 2020, we experienced a global shutdown, global trauma, which led us into years worth of reflection on what success really is and what we want our lives to be. And I believe that we're still in this bit of chaotic shift trying to decide what the right answer is. And what I'm seeing is a much needed and necessary shift to where our sense of worth and our sense of value doesn't come from our achievements and our work title but comes from us knowing us. And I believe that is the shift that we have needed for some time because the way that we were working was leading us straight to an epidemic of burnout. And while this time of chaotic shift is full of uncertainty and many leaders trying to figure out what is the answer, I wholeheartedly believe that the future belongs to those leaders who are willing to be creatives who are willing to create the future of work. And I want to be a part of that effort. And so this series is dedicated to interviewing people and asking them, what do you think the future of work could and should be? What problems should we solve? What ideas should we consider? And by doing this series, it will lead us into our own sense of reflection as leaders and as employees. And what do we want? How do we want work to feel? And As we make this shift, I believe as we change the work, we can change the world into a society that honors each of our uniqueness and honors the value that we bring into an organization. So if we can change the work, we can change the world because, you know, making money just ought to feel better. So I'm glad you're here. Not only can I promise you that you are going to be blessed by this interview with Phil Anderton. I want you to just pay attention to how many interesting twists and turns and connections that happen during this conversation. For one, the way that we found each other is fascinating. And I love these stories because as business people, we have been led to believe that we have to have everything figured out. And what I have learned over the past eight years is that we don't have to figure out as much as we think. We have to be ready to receive what shows up. And so the way that Phil and I found each other starts with a Google search that he did around a town in England called Fleetwood, which is a little fishing town, which he says is not much there. But you know, I've Googled it and now I'm planning a trip to Fleetwood, England, because why wouldn't I? But as he Googled Fleetwood, England, all of a sudden he said, there was my picture and let him down a path to realize that we are connected through the topic of attention deficit disorder, ADHD, 
which you may not know that I did a TEDx talk about ADHD as our innovators many years ago that continues to get a lot of comments and messages that I get from people saying that it has blessed them, which makes my heart happy. And so Phil reached out to me when I was asking for interviews to talk about the future of work. And boy, am I glad that he did. Let this be a nudge and an encouragement to you that if you get that, hang up. I wonder if I should, or maybe I'll reach out to do it because there's something there. There's some weird and wild connection that you couldn't have planned for yourself that is going to be worthy of everyone's time and attention. And this is exactly what we've got in this episode because Phil's story is also one of twists and turns. And I'll let him share that in the episode. But the future of work involves everyone and their differences. Let's hear from Phil. Tell me about you and your background and how you got involved with the world of ADHD. This will be the intro that I use for the podcast, but just okay. tell us about who you are. If we roll back time to 20 years ago, I was a serving senior police officer in Lancashire. And my chief constable, you would have a commissioner or someone like that, came into my office and said, Phil, there are too many young people coming into crime and criminality. I need you to sort that out. And out he walked, huge presence of a man, huge character, and he'd thrown this grenade in the room and I had to jump on it and, and diffuse the fallout. And the Home Office, our regulator of policing in those days, had recognised that there were too many young people entering the criminal justice system in Lancashire, compared to other counties, and we needed to do something with that. I had a very small team of guys given to me. I sent them away for two weeks to look for something that was new, that had never been done before, or something that we were doing as a police service that we could do better, that would keep young people out of crime and criminal behaviour. And one of the chaps, a sergeant called Stephen Brown, Steve Brown came back and he said, well, boss, there's this thing called ADHD. And if people don't get the right treatment, or in fact don't get any treatment for their ADHD, their behaviour can be unregulated, they can turn to substances, and they can turn to crime, and it's a pathway that can be plotted, and it's also hereditary. So many of the what we call problem families that we've got may well have ADHD running through their DNA over generations. And I think, boss, there's something in this. And that was 20 years ago. And we thought, well, wow, that's a bit left field. But we then started working with that as a hypothesis. Is there a connection between the two? And if you go back 20 years, we predate Google, we predate the email facilities that we've got now. We wrote proper letters, as it were, on constabulary-headed notepaper to the likes of Russ Barkley, Tom Brown, Tim Willens, some of the great ADHD researching clinicians. All of those are still friends with me now. They all wrote back, and in fact, Barkley rang me, I believe, and sort of said, you're absolutely spot on. What can I do to help? And that was the start of it. We started working with the criminal justice systems in the UK and the US. We did a lot of fantastic work in the US and got to see some great places in America that don't normally go to on vacation, did some work with the cops, with the court systems, and so on. And then I retired from policing, became a management consultant with two companies, Mott McDonald and PwC. Fast forward through that part of my career, I went independent as a management consultant, worked in our NHS here in the UK to try and improve systems and processes so that clinics could see more people. And that was really hard work. That was a tough two years. So then I started ADHD 360, 
five years ago last month with a view to performing ADHD assessments and diagnosis and treatment properly, running to the problem families, not running away from them. And we thought we'd see 20 patients a month. In November, we assessed 1,300 new patients for ADHD. So going back to when I was asking the NHS to take more people out of the criminal justice system or keep them out by assessing and diagnosing and treating their ADHD, we really are poacher tone gamekeeper. And we, we now are Europe's biggest ADHD service. And I'm proud of that. It makes me so emotional because I know the power of helping those people and those families and just even bringing awareness that there's nothing wrong with them, that there's no shame involved in their story. As somebody that has informally coached some of those families and, of course, my TEDx talk, the messages that I have received from all over the world from people who have said, I finally feel like somebody gets me. And just yeah. to provide that sense of safety and you're okay to somebody is such a beautiful human thing to do. So thank you for following that call on your heart and that weird way that well, it showed up. I mean, that's yeah. beautiful. Well, you know, the word we hear a lot in feedback from our patient community is validation. And people are telling us that I feel validated for the first mm -hmm. time. And we train all our clinicians. We have our own academy. And one of the things we push is empathy. And we have on the academy, we have patients there for the whole time. And we really push the fact that you can't be a medic in the world of ADHD without empathy and understanding for the human nature of what's going on. There's a sidebar story. How you led it this, I don't quite know. You'll be aware from all of your work and, and looking and listening to what you've done that a lot of adults, especially with ADHD, present with anxiety and depression. And if we look medically, what drives anxiety and depression? It's a deficit in serotonin in the prefrontal cortex, where ADHD is a deficit in dopamine in, in that area. So if we treat the classic presentation of depression with serotonin and don't get any results, we just end up going on a hamster wheel of, well, you look depressed, so I'm going to treat you for depression. I'm not getting anywhere, so we'll change the depression medication, but you're still on the same hamster wheel, and we're getting nowhere. The theory I, I posit is that the long-term untreated population of people with ADHD are situationally cheesed off. They're not depressed. They don't understand themselves. People don't understand them. Why is it harder for me than the person sat next to me? Why is work so difficult? Why is a relationship so difficult to hold down? Why can't I manage a shopping list? Why can't I find my car keys? Why can't I actually have a meaningful time at work? Why can't I enjoy my life? as much as the person sat next to me. I'm brighter and cleverer than the person sat next to me. Why is this so hard for me when it's not as hard for them? So they get situationally cheesed off. Now, I use a different word than cheesed when I talk about it. And you can probably imagine where that letter that begins with P is going to go, but I don't know what your audience is. But You're safe here. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, situationally pissed off, I actually believe is a thing. And to have gone through that many years of your life, not understanding yourself and not being understood by those that you love and care for and those around you. I can't imagine a harder journey. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. No matter how much empathy we try and get in people, I can't imagine what that's like. Right. To be able in um, a single assessment process and within four weeks of commencing on medication to reduce that SPO to the point where it's no longer part of someone's dominant life, I think is an absolute privilege. And 
it really is a privilege to do that for 1,300 people and their families every month. At the risk of getting overly gushing and emotional, bear in mind, I was a cop for 27. <laughs> I do believe that the more we can do to raise awareness of what can be done for people with ADHD, the better the world will be. And there's not enough activity going on. There's far too much pontification and procrastination. There's a lack of investment in ADHD completely, not just financially, but emotionally. The more we can change that paradigm, the world will be a better place. And if we can make the world a better place for 5% of the population, I don't think we're doing a bad thing, do you? Oh my gosh, all day long. And I love that you actually have an acronym. You actually call it SPO. I love this. I think about the future of work, untapping the potential of intelligence and creativity that exists in that population as those that have the ability to solve some of the world's most challenging problems. Because one of the beautiful benefits of ADHD, if it's honored, is their keen ability to hyper-focus on something where others cannot. And so if we can channel the interest and the hyper-focus into some of the world's problems and business problems and societal problems, and instead of criticizing their inability to be generalist, but honor their ability to be divine specialists, could be phenomenal to our society overall. Absolutely. And I often describe people with ADHD in terms of creativity and thinking capability as the commander of a very powerful speedboat. And what they actually need is a whole host of people behind them sorting out the wake of the dynasty as they plow through the lake and they speed up causing this great wake. Now, unless you use the word honor there, which is the first time I've heard that word used in that context of this conversation, but it really resonates. Because if you've got the right team to honor that effort, to honor that dialogue, to honor those emotions and make the very most of what's going on in that speedboat journey, that person will continue to push the throttle and will continue to revel in the success. If you've got nobody behind that person, what you've just got is a big weight that's causing chaos and that person will stop and they will not achieve their potential and they will no longer drive forward in a manner that is actually going to create change. And there's no greater population. You've segued into something there, which I didn't know whether we'd get to or not. But our university students, our college students, are... The, the greatest, I think, the greatest need of this conversation and these changes in society that we have. And the reason I say that with such confidence is these kids leave home for the first time where whatever scaffolding and structure they've got around them is just yeah. suddenly dissolved. Their medical treatment regime could be five or six states away geographically. It could be in a different time zone for you. They've got no reference point, yet they've got an exposure all of a sudden to the need to corral their own academic life for the first time to the level they've got. They've got sex and drugs and rock and roll on offer to a level that's not been in their lives before. And we're expecting people, students with ADHD, to get a grip of all of that and make it work. And that doesn't happen for most students with ADHD. We've got such a great opportunity if we start to develop greater understanding of parts of our community, elements of society, and start to cherry-pick helping different people in different ways, in different groups, that we can actually start to make a really big difference. We've got to stop thinking outside the box. We've actually got to reinvent the box. Mm. 
because it's got to be a completely different shape if we're going to actually get what we need out of what our inputs are going to be. To harness the emotional incredible power of a person with ADHD, we have to not only have medical treatment to the right level, we have to have that scapulum, that support, that empathy. We have to give them structure. We have to help them. And if we don't do that, and if we don't coach and we don't mentor, we're doing half a job. And I think the next generation requires more than half a job from us. I think they need the whole job. And it's people like yourself in what you do and organizations like ours that are on the cusp of changing the way things look, if that makes any sense. I'm revisiting the West Wing in, in what little spare time I get. I watched it many years ago and I'm revisiting and um, some of the dialogue in that program is unbelievable. There was something said in that program. Conventional opinion with ADHD is like concrete. It hardens and then you can do nothing with it. And it's our job to now challenge conventional opinion and not accept that it's so hardened that we can't do anything with it. Our opportunity is to resent that fact and actually start to do something with it. And... That just resonated with me. They weren't talking about ADHD. I've slotted that bit in. Yeah. But conventional opinion is hardened like concrete. That's our opportunity to change. Okay. That just lit my brain on fire because my belief, the reason I wanted to do this series about the future of work is that we are in the greatest transformation of society that we've been in since we shifted from the agricultural age to the industrial age. To me, that's when we started the foundation of the consequences that we have today that most everything has an external validation and motivation. I'm working for someone. I got to get grades. I have something else that has to tell me if I'm okay or if I'm good but also the industrial model of command and control and measure being how we define our human lives. And this transformation that's happening now that started 2019 when the first report on burnout came out, it started a very brief conversation, but then 2020 blew it wide open. And so our definition of success has shifted And now we're looking around in this bit of chaos as a community, a society, and largely in commerce, not sure what to do with it because our brains always want to go to the old way and try to reorganize it and fix it. And to your point about concrete, the old way will no longer serve the new expectations. And so the only way that we create a future of work is to create it. We're not going to refurbish the old way and make that work. And so it's like somebody has taken a jackhammer and just dug up all the concrete of the way it used to be and said, okay, now we will create. And some people say that it's the gig economy. And I think that's only a small portion of it because entrepreneurialism is a really rough way to go for many because of what you said about the ADHD, about needing support. Even the emotional roller coaster of being an entrepreneur, of wanting, you know, some sort of team infrastructure. You gotta be a certain breed of individual to make it on your own in business. But I think we need the ability to create a new way of working. And that if we change the way that we work 
and honor the ADHD brain, honor more of what people need for their human needs, that we can change the world, that society will follow based on the construct of commerce. And so this is chaos, and it's going to be chaos for a little while, but I am committed to bring these stories and these ideas into the minds and the hearts of those willing to create something different for the future. And when I think about the work that you're doing, I think about companies that would be willing to invite your support in to the organization as a part of the organization, not leaving it up. The worst thing about asking an ADHD person to go find help is their biggest deficit is the organization that it takes to go find help. Absolutely. So you just said, go wander around in the forest and hopefully you'll find the right thing that you're looking for. And they may not know what they're looking for either. So we're walking blind with no idea what we do. I was writing a piece earlier this afternoon. I was fortunate to find time in the diary to, to write something. And I was writing about our own workforce at ADHD 360. And roughly about 30 to 40% of my team are neurodiverse. It's a good job that we're not in the business of fixing broken legs because we would have an organization of people in plaster casts. It seems that we attract and hold people through that empathy. It must be. But we've a number of people in the, in the main offices here who have come and applied for a job. And despite their quirkiness, despite their challenges, have won that competitive process for the job, but then not been able to perform that role. And when we unpick and find that neurodiversity that some didn't know about, but perhaps weren't willing to share it at interview, some didn't know about and have gone on that journey of adventure. The articulation that we afford as an organization to be able to sit down with those individuals and say, right, what are we going to do with you? What do you want to do? What are you good at? You now know the whole organization. What can you do for us that actually allows you to drive that speedboat? We've got many of those stories. One young lad, he was employed to produce documents, letters to doctors, and answer the phone. He couldn't do either. God love him. His executive functioning just would not do this at all. He would just stare at the phone that was ringing and just look at it. And his procrastination was to the point where he couldn't even pick oh, what the hell do we do with this phone? It's phone But now he walks the buildings... He problem solves anybody who's got anything wrong going on around their desk, their environment, their IT. He's passionate about IT. He builds keyboards for people who've got particular wrist issues. We send every patient a blood pressure machine. And so that's 1,300 blood pressure machines we ship out every month. And he looks after all of that. They go into jiffy bags, they're labeled, and he gets them posted. He's become the handyman, if you will, of the whole organization. And he walks out with a smile on his face and you just think, well, that's no bad thing, is it? We've actually been able to, instead of making him mold his competencies to an organization, we've kind of molded the organization to his competencies. And we've got many of those stories through our workforce. And I just think that's a delightful walking the talk that we should take to commerce. And we should say, yeah, you've got these job descriptions, you've got this organizational design, you've got this structure. You've got P&L, and you can affect your P&L a lot more if people are actually doing what they're good at for you rather than putting them in a pigeonhole and asking them to do something that they're not willing to do. Do you know that this person's likely to be neurodiverse? No, we don't. Well, you should, and then there's a whole host of things that you could do. There's a whole host of things you perhaps should do. Well, here's what you might want to do that would be directly correlated to your P&L. 
And when you start to see it as actually already on your balance sheet, neurodiversity is something that should be captured and made available, you actually start to change the mindset. Now, I'm not going to lie, Rebecca, that's bloody tough to harness that amongst the, we've 170 odd employees now. So a third of those is a lot of neurodiversity, a lot of individuality, and, and a lot of emotional dysregulation, a lot of emotion, a lot of challenge. But when you pull it off, you get the benefits. And that's got to be better than letting someone go and then having to re-recruit and start again. And what does that do to the individual that you've pushed away from an organization and just increase their SPO, not actually harness those benefits? So there's a whole raft of stuff that we've got to actually get a new box for and design it. You know, Richard Branson, I'm pretty certain, has a massive team of people around him to sort out his cock-ups and tell him where to go next and say, hang on, Mr. B, that might not be your best idea right now. We might just need to smooth that out a little bit. Or are you aware of it? And, you know, when we look at successful entrepreneurs, we do find that there is normally a, a scaffolding team around them literally making things happen. If I can, I'll tell you a quick tale. Yeah. Many years ago, I was at a conference in DC and um, found the time to go to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Typical lab. That was the museum I wanted to go to. <laughs> Keep your art. I wanted to go to see fast jets and spaceships. So we're walking around and it was the 100th year of flight or something. And then there, out on a display, were Wilbur and Orville Wright's school reports. And if you ever get the chance to Google and read their school reports, there is an absolute definite diagnosis of ADHD in what was written. And if we ever needed a lesson in the power of that micro-focus, that ability to harness that energy, to stay sustained on a task, they were the guys who invented flight. So if we want an example of a role model, Let's not look at film stars. Let's not look at musicians. Let's actually look at two guys who changed the world forever. And I promise anybody who listens to this webinar, if you Google and see those school reports, you will see the evidence of their ADHD in spades. And I was so excited to see those. I've still got photographs of them somewhere. But doesn't that just capture the essence of this conversation? And the corporate will say, no, you can't go to the beach. And you can't put that muslin cloth over this bamboo strip that you want because you think it'll do something like a bird. No, you've got to sit here and do whatever. Where would we be? What? How different could it all be? We've got to invent the new box and show empathy when we do it. And I think ultimately, long term, that means inventing a new education system because our most formative years are spent in a construct that violates all of that ability to honor who they are and explore who they are without shame or guilt or frustration. Many of the most brilliant minds don't make it out of that system because they're defeated before they even come out of the education system, right? But I want to go back to something that you said about it's incredibly hard to lead and manage an organization with the level of neurodiversity that exists in your organization. And I get it. Many of my clients, my family members, friends are neurodiverse. So I understand that. And I think that if we label that difficulty for whatever words you wanted to use, and then looked at a 
typical organizational construct today that doesn't honor the neurodiversity, they have their own label of hard. There are things about that organization that aren't working, that are difficult. And so to me, it's not about one being easier or harder. It's about choose your hard. Mm -hmm. And if we thought about the level of intention and connection and honoring the human spirit that it takes to lead a neurodiverse organization, if you put that level of connection versus control on any organization that honors the emotional flow of just being human, neurodiverse or not, and said that connection matters more than control. We're going to honor our nervous system. We're going to honor that we don't always have the level of energy that we need just because that's when the meeting was scheduled or whatever that is. That has to net a higher return of honoring the human system in general. It's still going to be hard. I, I think of that young man that I talked about as a kind of case study, if you will. Um, you talk about two different versions of hard. I think you're absolutely right. There is no one else in the organization would want to put 100 blood pressure machines in bags, label them, and send them out in the post. But he's very happy doing that. Not only is he happy doing that, he created the interface between our computer system and the postal machine to actually make it better. So we get the creativity. We harness the energy that he's put to make his own job easier. And he bangs those things out. He makes mistakes. He prints labels and then forgets to put them on the bags and we have to nag him and we have to have a system and a scaffolding around it to make sure it happens. Well, I promise you there would be no one else in the organization that would A, take on the challenge and B, then apply his creativity and his skills to it to make it even better and more efficient. So yeah, you're quite right. I've not thought about it in that way, but you've got a balance sheet of hard on the left and hard on the right and inevitably you're trading hard, but you're trading it from a decent moral compass and... If you can do that, then we're onto a good thing, aren't we? I, I think of one of my other team members who has ADHD and also is autistic. And we've a few people with both of those neurodiversity labels, if you will. And of course, what they get caught in on a daily basis is the fact that their autism is saying, I need rigidity, I need structure. And their ADHD is saying, I need to be impulsive and I just need to get things done and I need to make things happen. And this tension between those two that they're living through, as many, many, many other people that we're talking about here are living through every day. But if we can then say, right, so this part of your day is when you're going to hopefully be seeing the rigidity come to fruition for you and you can apply that. But then if you want to be impulsive, we can't just put people in a single paragraph and say that's who you are. And I think the greatest dichotomy in most of our ADHD community is that tendency to have some autism in there which brings rigidity and a requirement and a lack of change within the same human carcass that is saying, I will constantly want change and I will do things impulsively. And if we actually start to think about what that means for people in the workplace, it means they're going to be bloody confused within their own shell, never mind before we put anything else in front of them. Even just articulating that conversation with people at the basils, by the coffee machine, by the water machine, even just articulating that and allowing people to actually start to think, well, I'm not as wacky as I thought it was because, yeah, you can be rigid and impulsive. That's allowed, isn't it? That's my point. That's allowed. It is hard, but it does diminish the hards and other things. 
we had the Christmas break recently. And in the UK, it's a bigger and longer break than it is across the States. We absolutely rape it for everything we can get in terms of time off from work. We do. We push it to the max. I love it. And on Boxing Day, I started to get emails through from one of my team who's absolutely incredibly autistic. And she'd taken it upon herself to use the Christmas break to get her head into a piece of work where no one was disturbing her to actually get into the detail of an IT piece of work we're doing to change our IT, uh, which is really exciting in what we're doing. And she started to go through the user specification and the user requirement for this piece of work. And every day she was sending me a 10-page document for me to review, for it to go to the training engineer. Now, there was a time, if I'm really brutally honest, when I turned to my colleagues and not again, another one I've got to, but when you look back and, and park those emotions, there was somebody who had the time, the emotion, the, the flair, the passion to say, no one else is going to disturb me. This is my moment, and I'm going to maximize on the benefit I can give this organization to get this piece of work done. Now, that is a different hard to the hard of, who else is going to do it, and when, it's and how. beautiful. The balance sheet piece there is is just profound. Yeah, she totally cocked up my Christmas, but she, she absolutely did a wonderful piece of work that she was proud of. We should capture those moments and absolutely play them back in opportunities like this and opportunities in the workplace. Um, delightfully, we were able to promote her at Christmas because she'd earned it. I would say that in many organisations, she could neither be the autistic person that she is and she would have to change her behaviours or she wouldn't actually survive in an organisation that's bordering on being corporate now with 160, 170 employees, regulated frameworks. And, you know, even just articulating and talking that with you does actually fill me with a bit of pride that we have that. We have that in the workplace, that freedom of expression and that creativity. And I like your trading card for hard, and I will steal that with pride. Yeah. I think this very much, it's a trade, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a two-way trade. And I think about the relationships that that employee of yours has now versus in her personal life versus the ones that she would have had staying in an organization that didn't honor her authenticity of who she really is, the ripple effect on society when we aren't honored for who we actually are is real. And the cost of that to society is too great. And so being able to give her a place where she can be herself and know that she, and the way I measure it is, I call it VRI, she's valuable relevant and making an impact Mm -hmm. and you're acknowledging it and she's acknowledging it and that's the connection construct it's not you have to fit into this corporate box i recently started to partner with a person who is both add and uh, autistic and it's a beautiful relationship because I understand that about her, just as you described. And the work that she's doing for me is currently kind of a side hustle from a, another job that she has, but it allows her to go down that just rabbit hole of hyper-focus and getting into some of those things, solving problems for my business. But again, like you said, some of our meetings happen over text at 10 p.m. because that's when she had the space to go down that path without her small children, you know, in her other job. And me just knowing that 
it's not going to be a regularly scheduled thing. It's going to happen when it happens. But you know what it's done for me is it's freed up the ability for me to do that as well. And so I no longer feel like I have to have right and wrong and black and white. Her ability to do that has freed up more of my creativity and flow. And it's a beautifully chaotic symbiotic relationship. (laughs) And the problems that she has solved in technology for my business, sometimes in 48 hours, things that I've been trying to solve for months in the way that she can see it is just mind-blowing to me. Somewhere in the future of work, I have to believe that this coming to fruition of honoring the uniqueness that exists in each of us will somehow form a new way of living and working that we will all benefit from. Well, you you talked earlier about education, didn't you, and how perhaps broken the education system is. We have this fascination with getting and expecting every child to be at the same academic point at exactly the same time. There's a cartoon that knocks about with a picture of an elephant, a giraffe, fish, and a monkey. And the competition is, well, see you can get to the top of the tree first. Well, the fish is never going to win that competition. And we are expecting this out of our children in our education environments on a daily, monthly, annual basis. It's just fundamentally flawed that we have those expectations. And then we're expecting our children to actually study a curriculum that they may have no interest in and it also may be way beyond their capability at that moment in time to reach a standard which if you don't, you fail and you don't go back and get another challenge. And full of expectation, full of failure. And we're sowing the seeds of SPO in children as young as five and six. And I don't know how many kids you get to work with what you do. We've got a big child population of patients. Mm-hmm. One young lad stands out and he had coping mechanisms at the age of eight in the classroom and We shouldn't be putting children into a position where they need to develop coping mechanisms so that they don't make fools of themselves. When the teacher comes to them and says, in relation to where are we up to with this lesson, what does 84 times 12 add up to? And what have you? And the child hasn't followed and can't answer the question, knows the question is coming to them and has a coping mechanism for dealing with that. Because this young lad, delightful young lad, he would turn the conversation to his teacher and say, Ask me that question. That's a delightful blouse you've got on today. And actually flirt his way out of that problem. We had another child who could sense the question was going to come his way. So he put his hand up and asked to be excused to go to the bathroom. To the point where when we diagnosed that young man's ADHD, and this had all been talked through in the assessment process in the diagnostic consultation with my clinician, when we talked that through and he talked about his coping mechanism, the school referred us as the agency that believed he had ADHD to social services because they believed he had a bladder problem and he had something wrong with the kidneys. And we totally missed the point by absolutely not referring him to a GP to have his kidneys sorted out. And it goes beyond miserably complaining about this. It just becomes something of futile mirth and merriment, doesn't it? Because how absolutely ridiculous that we have a system that can miss all of these signs and signals a system where our teachers are not trained on how to spot and manage ADHD in the classroom scenario, prepared to actually be that lump of concrete that has got that positioning that it will not shift. That child has got nothing wrong with them. 
in terms of neurodiversity, they've got a broken kidney and they need to go and see a neurologist and get it fixed. And the nonsense that we are in society exposed to about this thing called ADHD. Why am I doing this webinar? Because we've got to change the paradigm. Yeah. We've got to influence. And if only one person is influenced to change something as a consequence of listening to this nonsense I'm talking, then that's one positive change outcome that, that we need to keep making. So whether we're dealing with young kids, grandparents who want to be a better grandparent than they were a father, than they were a son, it doesn't matter to us, does it? It's about changing someone's life for good, for the good, and doing it as quickly and expeditiously as is safely possible within the bands of medicine. And I truly get motivated by doing this and recognising those things that we can change. It's exciting, isn't it? It is. It is. And sometimes just the awareness is enough to generate change. I know when I was creating my content for ADHD when my son was was young, one of my colleagues in the organization I worked for then, I asked her to read some of the things I had written. And she messaged me back that because I'd given her a greater level of awareness, she was working better with one of our other colleagues who was huge in the organization doing great things, but was really maddening to work with sometimes because of his ADHD, which I recognized as ADHD, but she had not. And so by reading the things that I was writing, she realized, oh, that's him. And she said, I went into the next meeting with him with such a greater level of awareness and empathy that we had a much better byproduct and outcome of that meeting because of you sharing this with me. So sometimes it's just a matter of this conversation could open the eyes of somebody at work to look across the meeting room next week at someone and realize they're not trying to be difficult. They just see the world very differently. And if I could lean in and understand them a little bit better, I bet we both could get more out of this. You're spot on. We treated a nurse who actually worked in a, an ADHD clinic. And a few weeks into her treatment, we said, so what are the changes, the remarkable changes that you're noticing? And she said, I've had complaints from my colleagues. Said, all right, what about? When we have meetings, I no longer make them all a cup of coffee. Because she used to get up every 10 minutes and go around and fill everybody's cup. Her coping mechanism was to actually just get up and say, and rather than just walk around and be a nuisance, she would actually offer to make coffee or pour coffee for everybody. And she was the supplier of drinks throughout a two-hour meeting ad nauseum. And it was her coping mechanism for her fidgets and impulsivity and hyperactivity and all those classic things we talk about. When you talk about people seeing it, of course, the greatest exponent of being exposed to it and seeing it in other people is when the parent sees themselves in the assessment process for their child. And there are many occasions, and Lisa, who is our uh, clinical director, has this amazing expression that she uses in those scenarios. And, and we call it the pedigree clinic, where the adult's light bulb comes on and you can see it. And by the time the light bulb's coming on for the adult's, whose child we're assessing, we've also had exposure to that adult's behavior through that process. We've now got a rock-solid opinion of where that adult is. And then Lisa stops the process with great confidence. And she says, right, what's going on for you now, Dad? And Dad will say, everything you've asked, young Billy, was me when I was his age. Yep. And if I can talk to you about how many times you've interrupted and the fidgeting and the getting up, those kind of things. What I'm going to ask you to do now is let's not assess your son. 
remainder of this time we've got together. Let's put your oxygen mask on first and let's get you sorted. It'll only be a matter of weeks. Let's get you sorted so we can come back to Billy. You're now going to be in a much better position to actually provide the scaffolding and structure for your son. If we try it the other way around, as they say on an airline, don't put the child's oxygen mask on. They'll cope for another five minutes whilst you're putting yours on. You put your mask on first and take it from there. And that illuminative experience of parents picking up what we're doing with their children and it resonating with them to the point where we've now got that family, that pedigree diagnostic process, it is incredible when you've then got mum, dad, and the child or the children. And, of course, the spin from that is I had an old colleague came to my house to talk about his son's ADHD once, and mum and dad were sat on the sofa, and I sat on another sofa over coffee. We're having a chat. I said, so you think he's got ADHD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where's it come from? And they went, you what? I said, well, it's biologically inherited, and you're both the biological parents, so come on, let's have that difficult conversation. Which one of you has brought ADHD into his life then? And then you get them sitting on opposite ends of the sofa going, well, it's got to be you, hasn't it? Well, no, it's got to be you. And the, the hilarious nature of those conversations to actually to throw the pebble in the pond and start it off, but then take that round of process and actually start to help through the whole family it is when I think we're also bringing about systemic change because we start to get generational improvement, which is a whole home improvement, which is more than just getting the little child through their exams or not in trouble at school. And I get really excited when we have those conversations. And I, I'll tell you, I was frightened to death of those conversations five years ago to actually front that up with a pair, set of parents and say, well, go on then, which one? Who is it? And take that round a whole experiential learning cycle with an outcome at the end. It's great fun and then beneficial to the whole family. But that's what we're saying. We, we need to be doing that at work more. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I hope that we will continue to be business partners and friends and collaborate on this work because I have found this conversation absolutely delightful and inspiring. And I hope one day to visit the fishing village of Fleetwood and thank it for this introduction because... Well, we open our first clinic in uh, in America uh, next month. Where? In San Antonio in Texas. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. It's very new news. And part of our growth plan, 23 into 24, is to take the 360 model into the States. And we're going for a pretty soft approach to the launch. But yeah, we're taking this model in, into San Antonio. The clinician that we're working with is over in the UK on Friday to be trained in the academy. And I spend a lot of time in America pulling that together. I've done a lot of work with Chad as an organization. Yeah. I'm at Absard next week in, in Florida, and then I'm up in Alabama later on in the month at a conference at the University of Alabama. So yeah, the whole thing of America is, I think, it is no use me sitting on this side of the pond and saying things need to change. I need to get off my backside, get my checkbook out, and actually start to change things. That's where we're at. So yeah, let's keep talking, because there's a whole raft of things to, to go at and we've marginally touched on an awful lot of agendas here we're connecting we're doing a lot of work coming up this year on the connection between physical health and adhd oh, diabetes smoking cessation weight loss heart, heart attacks and strokes and the preventative nature of what we do by treating people for adhd there's a whole 
raft of good work in raising awareness of those side benefits, if you will, of ADHD treatment. We've done a lot of work with women and ADHD, and we treat the woman on her menstrual cycle very different Mm -hmm. to the other three weeks of her month medically. And we've got some profound results for a woman having four weeks of her life back, not just three through treatment by altering medication for that key week. So there's a massive amount of stuff to talk. And I'd like to pick your brain more on what you're doing. This has all been a bit one-sided, really. I'd like to explore more of what you do and the whole write-your-own-story thing and the psychological piece that you bring into that. So I'd be fascinated to carry on. Well, you know what you've just re-inspired in me is I wrote a book that I didn't publish as a book called Not Wrong, Just Different, Seeing ADHD Differently. And it was written for parents, grandparents, people to be more aware of the power of the relationship and how they saw this challenge. And I ended up turning it into video training modules that I sold for a little while at the time when my son was of an age where it was just right in my face all the time and so much a part of my life. And when I shifted my business and changed a website and changed some things, I took it down and I haven't done anything with those, but they're still very, very meaningful and valuable and relevant. And so I had mentioned to this business partner that I had had referenced earlier that we need to get those back up on the new site and start using those again. If and when that project becomes a thing, I would love to send those to you and and just vet those through your professional eyes to see if they still hold weight. You know, they're about 10 years old now, but they're all about just how you see the situation. Because you mentioned something that really triggered my thought on this is if you want treatment for your ADHD child or grandchild because you want them to get a better grade in school, we've missed the point. Yeah. And so Absolutely. If, if we're doing it for compliance, and I'm not interested, but if we're doing it to further their life and the relationships that we have, then I'm all in. But I think the more we have, more voices we have doing this work, the better. Well, what Barclay found, didn't he, that 10 years less lifespan for somebody with ADHD that's not treated. And the question begs to be asked, why is that? How can you lose 10 years of your life through being inattentive and impulsive? And yeah, you can talk about accidents with cars. I think it's the stress and the negativity that comes from the relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then being extremely overweight because you can't plan a diet and you can't cook a meal and you can't shop. Well, and the stress will cause the weight gain too of of always the negative feedback that you get. It it becomes a self-licking lollipop where these become inevitable outcomes of not treating ADHD effectively. And the other exciting part to take what you just alluded to, though, with the not wrong but different is, why is the only avenue into treatment for ADHD? This is a hypothetical question. Why is the only avenue through misbehavior or failure? Why are we now not looking at the overweight person, the person who is smoking beyond what is acceptable, the person who is drinking beyond what's acceptable, and actually saying, well, what's driving that behavior? Let's screen for ADHD. Because I bet you, I promise you, we will find people and we will treat their ADHD. But we charted it and, and we've got some amazing graphs of where we treated ADHD and watched people's BMI and their weight and height relationship just change completely. Yeah. And it's not all because the drugs are diet suppressants. No, it's, it's regulating the nervous plan. system. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can actually be the right person to survive a healthy lifestyle. When you regulate your nervous system, 
the cells inside your body stop beating each other up in frustration. It becomes a positive experience. It becomes aligned, yes. And we send out a thousand plus blood pressure machines and we're finding patients who never knew they were hypertensive and we're finding them, treating them for their ADHD, reducing their anxiety. And as the medicine goes up with their ADHD, you can see their blood pressure coming down. And when you chart it, it's quite miraculous how you can see the link between physical health and mental ill health. And, you know, there's a massive piece of work to be done in raising public awareness and finding those new entry points into an ADHD service that come from the physical health side effects, the physical health symptoms, rather, that we're missing and we're just relying on the old block of concrete. We've now got yeah. a new shaped block and we should be looking for new ways. So there's, there's a lot to talk about in there. I think the future of work is partnering with organizations like yours and looking at benefits very differently, looking at benefits as being the how can we meet the needs of our workforce proactively and not the traditional sense that we have today, which is a whole nother episode for another day. (laughs) Well, let's, okay, we'll just consider ourselves partners and friends. And if your travels here in the States get you anywhere close to Indianapolis, Chicago area, hit me up. I'll make sure that we find some time to get together And uh, let's just continue this kind of partnership and relationship. Excellent. It's been lovely to spend an hour with you. Thank you ever so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. I would love it if you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. And then you can go to RebeccaFleetwoodHessian.com and join the Badass Women's Council. If you really want to take a deeper dive, join the movement of a thousand thriving women. There's amazing Thrive tools there for you today. Love you, mean it. I'm not coming down. Hey, y'all, fun fact. If you like the music for the podcast, that is actually my son, Cameron Hessian. And I would love it if you would go to Spotify and iTunes and follow him and download some of his other music. My personal favorite is TV Land.